I remember that first time he came to eat at my shop. He sat down at the counter. He had this huge smile on his face. He ordered, and he was just observing every movement that I was making. And at that time, as I was preparing his order, Luca Catalfamo from Casa Ramen in Italy came in. And I think this sort of shocked him. And he looked up. I could hear him under his breath say, Oh my God, I'm sitting in Keizo's Ramen Shack and Luca Catalfamo walks in. Holy crap! And that's when I was like, who is this guy? But then afterwards, I decided to talk to him and, and he was this really geeky, really nice guy who just absolutely loved ramen. And that's when I found out he was the ramen lord. Welcome to the Ramen Podcast. My name is Keizo Shimamoto. And once again, we have a special guest. His name is, well, actually, he needs no introduction. But of course, it's Mike Satinover, the Ramen Lord. Welcome. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. Always a pleasure to chat with the legendary Keizo Shimamoto. Yeah, always a pleasure to have you on. Uh, this is my new podcast, I guess. And you know, we, we last talked on the Way of Ramen podcast, but I'm kind of happy to do something on my own. Hopefully this will be, uh, you know, something good for the community. And yeah, to have you on it again uh, with some big news, like a lot of changes since we last talked. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I really want to get into it, but, you know, let's <laughs> let's just give me the breakdown of Akahoshi Ramen, the brick and mortar in Chicago, Illinois. Sure. Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> yeah, the, the S is silent. Uh, My bad. Although apparently people in Aurora, Illinois, say it with the S, I heard. That's crazy. Anyway, I digress. Um, so, yeah, a lot has happened since we last chatted in both of our lives, respectively. Um, yeah. But for me, it, it's pretty singular. I opened a ramen shop in late November <laughs> of last year. It's called Akahoshi. It's called Congratulations. Akahoshi. Yeah, we're we're full steam ahead now. It's it's a real ramen shop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm oh, I'm I'm impressed. You know, I talked with Kevin Peng, your good friend, and and also my friend. Um, you know, he had lots of good things to say about it so far. Um, I'm excited to hopefully go try it soon. I'm sorry I couldn't oh, have been out there for the opening. It's okay. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting experience for sure. I would say. At a high level, things are going pretty well, considering, you know, I have no background running a restaurant. So, like, opening a restaurant <laughs> is kind of crazy for someone of that. But it's going pretty well. I wish I could tell you, like, everything sucks and it's awful and I hate <laughs> it. But it's not. It's pretty good. Like, I, I mean, there's positives and negatives, of course. Like, every business, every venture, anything you do in your life is not going to be perfect. But I'm pretty pleased overall. I mean, but yeah, I opened a <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but for those who don't, you know, 10 years making ramen, or over 10 years making ramen at home, uh, putting out this amazing cookbook, like really all these things you've learned, you've really educated the public on those things as well. 
and a lot of people respect you. And look, you, you, you made it to opening your shop. And, you know, just tell me about Akahoshi. Like, I know you did your homework. You put a lot of effort into the preparation. Uh, tell me how many seats there are, like what it's like, what the process was, was like going to like from build out to opening to maybe even before that, like finding the spot. Sure. I feel like, did we talk a little bit about this last time we spoke? I don't want to be redundant, but I'm happy to tell as much detail uh, as possible. I'm kind of an open book in that way. Um, yeah, I, we, I think we did talk about it a little bit, but now from the point of view that you're open, mm-hmm, like maybe you can kind mm-hmm. of go on things, things you might have done differently or things, you know, that you're glad you have, you, you did. I mean, I, it's weird. I, I heard that there would be a lot of nightmares along the way, but I would say that there were not that many nightmares. So um, I started looking for a space pre-COVID. You know, mm-hmm. prior to COVID, I was interested in opening a ramen shop. And so I connected with a um, a brokerage company called Bomb Realty, who began scouting for spaces for me under a very set specific number of criteria. You know, I wanted it to be less than 2,000 square feet. I needed to have two bathrooms so it could be... Uh, you could have the right uh, legal compliance in Chicago for occupancy reasons. You have to have a certain number of bathrooms if you have more than like 11 people in the space at any one point in time. And that includes staff. So it's like you need to have bathrooms. I wanted it to be second gen. So it needed to have like a hood and some plumbing. Although in hindsight, we tore up a bunch of the plumbing anyway. <laughs> so <it didn't, laughs> I don't know how much I mattered, but it helped a little bit. And then um, inevitably I, I wanted it to be in like the right zone and the right neighborhood and a lot of other criteria basically. And it took over three years, especially with COVID, you know, COVID kind yeah. of allowed for a lot of these spaces to open up because unfortunately a number of restaurants closed, but they were often in bad shape or they were kind of like, there was a reason those restaurants closed in the first place, right? Namely they weren't particularly popular or some combination thereof. And so it's not like it was an easy hunt. I think it took, you know, three, four years to even find this location. And we kind of just found it serendipitously, frankly. I just remember walking into the space and being like, oh, I could see this becoming a ramen shop. Like it felt very viscerally possible, which was the first time I had felt that in like the 50 or so space that I had been seen. I had been touring at that time. So, you know, I signed this lease and the lease negotiation took like four months. <laughs> it was just like a lot of like, and I, I guess if you're thinking about what do I have changed, like I needed to like be aware of the time. Things take forever in this industry. Like yeah. you think things are going to be quick? No, everything takes forever. And you okay. just have to be patient. Like, you know, I, you would think that a lease negotiation would be a pretty straightforward thing because often you've already identified the terms of the lease prior to opening the space. Like I knew what the rent was going to be. I knew the cadence. I knew the time frame. I knew what it was going to cover, what it wasn't going to cover, but it still took like three, four months. Uh, just like lawyers talking to each other, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and me being like, I don't know, <laughs> sounds good. Like, okay. <laughs> or yeah, that seems like a problem. Can we change that? And, you know, it's fine. We we got to a, a good place and we signed that lease. And that was in January of 2023 is when that lease was signed. I submitted my, depo- my security deposit on my birthday. So I turned 34 <laughs> and gave them a check <laughs> for the, the largest check I've ever written in my life you know? at the time, of course. Like then, of course, you go into the next phase of building it and you're writing insane checks all the time. And you're just like, oh, my God, so much money. Yeah, let's kind of get into that real quick. I mean, you had a very successful career before all of this and mm-hmm. you really planned it out. You knew how much you needed. You know, you saved your money. 
Um, I don't know how much money you spent on this, but you know, it does from an outside looking in that you did a lot of. I saved a lot of money. I still needed more money. It was not enough. Like, and that's the second thing is I would say is like, whatever you think your budget's going to be, you need to be, you know, like a multiply that by like some multiple because you're going to be wrong. Like something bad is going to happen in the build out or in the, the, the product or there's going to be a delay or something. And you just need more money. You can never, you know, my, funny (laughs) enough, the president of the brokerage who found me the place, he was like, I've never met a restaurant who was like, I have enough money. You know, it's like, I've never met a restaurant who was like, I have enough capital. I'm good. It's always like something is going to happen where you need some more capital. And that was pretty jarring, frankly, because, you know, you have to either make some choices and about the design or about the build out that are going to reduce the capital investment, or you need to buy different fixtures or you need to raise more money and raising money is not fun. Like I didn't want to have to raise money. So I had to make some choices that like, you know, it's kind of like I call it like Akahoshi 2.0 is maybe when we'll fix those things that I made choices on. Right. So, um, but it still costs more money than I anticipated, frankly, even with my planning, I don't think we went crazy. I think, you know, it wasn't a huge difference and it was somewhat manageable, but it was way more than I wanted to spend. Right. Like I wanted to spend nothing. I don't want to spend any money building this thing out. That's why I got second gen space. So spent a lot of money, but I was, Ultimately, it was still kind of in the range of like comfort. Like I don't feel like I don't feel like it will be difficult to recoup the investment that I made, frankly. So, but it, you spend more money. You just spend more money. Like restaurants are pits for money. Like they just yeah. I mean, even just, when you open, I mean, it's it's it just nonstop. Right? Yeah, dude. It's like let's say your restaurant is wildly successful. It's like eighty percent, ninety percent of that money is going to something else, right? If you're yeah. a good restaurant, if you're a good restaurant and you have ten percent operating profit. That means 90% of that cash went to staff or food or rent or overhead or something else. So you like, you get used to like always spending money, (laughs) always (laughs) spending money in a way that is frankly a little visceral and like a little shocking from time to time, especially for me, like going from a desk job where you just get a check and then you like save it or you spend it on dinner occasionally. Now it's like every day, $1,000 here. $500 $500 there, $1,000 there, $10,000 for this thing that you forgot about, $13,000 in sales tax. Like money is just going in and out all day long. Like it's pretty wild. It's a very surreal feeling, frankly. And you yeah, start I mean, you that gotta take, yeah. with the build out, you're not getting any money. So you're just seeing money <laughs> leave your bank account all day long. That number is getting lower and lower. You're like, oh man, I'm going to die. Like I'm cutting real <laughs> close right now, you know? Yeah. But the fact is you're employing people you know, to help you with your dream, you have to take care of them. So, yeah, you know, there, there's that aspect of it, of trying to mold and, you know, prep the right team to kind of take over your concept and build your brand bigger. Right. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, I think a lot of people were inherently bought into what Akahoshi was trying to do, which was to make a really awesome Set, small set of ramen that was totally made in the restaurant, made with compassion, made with care. I mean, there were instances of like, now, you know, my cooks are always looking for ways to improve the food, to think about the food in a more compelling, interesting way. You know, they'll challenge me if they think I'm making the wrong call on something. We are all kind of like striving towards the same goal. And I think that that was really a distinctly lucky thing that I stumbled into. I think often you hire a person and 
they're kind of just there and they waft in and out. And, but I genuinely feel like my team is very all aligned on this central goal. And that was a surprise, frankly. I was worried that it would be very difficult to find this group of people who would help make this dream come true. And I think that I've been very lucky. I just feel like I, I'm really, I'm genuinely lucky with the team that I have right now. I can't express enough gratitude towards them. And so, you know, they make this thing work. Like, they do. It's not to say that I'm not there all the time. I mean, I, I, we all, you and I both knew I was going to be there all day long, but like, yeah. you kind of don't realize what that actually is. Like a good day for me is like 13 hours at the restaurant. That's a good day. A bad day is like full 16. Like I literally <laughs> wake up, I drive to the restaurant, I finish, I leave the restaurant and go to bed and then rinse and repeat. You know what I mean? Um, Definitely. Definitely. Know those are just mean. days like that. There's just days like that. Like that's part of it. So I'm slowly getting acclimated to the reality of like this restaurant is like a child in a way right now. It's yeah, it's 100% like, your life. It's yeah. 100% my life, which, you know, I, that's what I signed up for. I'm, <laughs> it's pretty fun though. So it's okay <laughs> right now. You're uh, still in the honeymoon stage. <laughs> I know. I was thinking about that before joining this call. I was like, <laughs> I was going to call it the honeymoon stage. It's definitely <laughs> still the honeymoon stage. But I think the thing is just candidly, we are busy and the business is profitable and it is easier to do the grind when the business is successful than when the business is struggling. I think like if I was in an opposite position yeah. where we were just hemorrhaging money and no one was coming in the door and people really hated the food and my staff were unhappy or some combination of those factors, it would be really tough. Just like really brutal to do these 16 hour days. But I feel like a lot of reward from the way things have been going. So this ramen shop is open, operating, and people seem pretty pleased with what is coming out of this restaurant. So it's like, it's kind of rewarding. Yeah. You put your heart and soul to something and you get a reward. I, it's tough when it doesn't happen that way. And it's sometimes just luck. Like there are really awesome restaurateurs who just, I don't know, they can't make it work, you know? Like it's not for lack of trying, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really difficult. You have to have all a lot of things come into play. I mean, you have the whole social media aspect, the press, you know, the following, um, the anticipation of Akahoshi Ramen opening, like that, those were huge things. Like, and, and part of your staff too, you're getting great staff because a lot of people already respect you going in. I mean, I, I mm -hmm. felt it too with Ramen Shack and all that, like people from afar want to come yeah. work for you and like be a part of something special. Um, right. Definitely, you got to take advantage of that and, and, you know, like really make them feel special too. But obviously, like the hardest thing is sustainability. Like, can you sustain it for, for every aspect of the business? Um, you know, like you said, being profitable, like keeping staff happy, um, just doing the things, keeping yourself happy, like mentally uh, and yes. physically, you know? Yeah, because right now I can do these 16 hour days, but like, that's, I can tell that will just wear me out until I'm like a bleeding heap of a mess of a person, right? That's like just drained yeah. completely mentally and physically. And like there have definitely been days where it's like, okay, I'm on day three of just nonstop work. And I just like sit, I just lie down in one of the booths and like look at the ceiling and just like conk out for a little bit. Cause I just need to like do literally anything besides work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? Like just, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm, I'm toasted. I'm cake. You know, and I mean, I knew that would happen, but it's, it's a different kind of exhaustion, I think. Um, but yeah, it's just, 
it is mine and it's kind of just it's crazy i don't know it's hard to describe i i don't think i relish it enough frankly you know like i think i'm still in the grind mode of just pushing forward and getting things done and getting things to be better and better every day and you know yeah i don't think hard. you'll notice it until five years down the road and you're like, Oh shit. I, I would I love did, to, I used to do that. Years. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> so I how is it without like any restaurant experience, um, you know, hiring staff and then going through menu changes and all that? Like I'm sure your cooks and stuff have a lot of experience, probably more than you. Um, how does that feel? I mean, I, I was the same way, like opening up my first shop, you know, you hire people and then who have more experience working in the field and they they help you a lot. I mean, you might have all the creative ideas, but really putting it all together uh, so it does go from paper to reality. Like those are key things like to have mm -hmm. that support with your staff and everyone. Yeah. And I'm I'm lucky that they're eager to do that. I think I did two things. The first is I established that as an expectation pretty upfront in the hiring process. You know, we did training two weeks of training before we opened with the team. And a lot of that was not like, here's how you make the bowl. Here's the components, but more like here's what the culture of this place needs to be, which is like highly collaborative, highly integrated with one another. Everybody comes to the table with good ideas. We're always looking to improve the place and make things better for everybody. And that meant that I established myself as not having a lot of hubris in the game, right? Like, I don't know what the best way to do this is necessarily. I just, I'm the ramen guy. Like, I just know how to make the ramen, right? And even then, that doesn't mean I may know how to make the best ramen. There's always ways to make it better. So I'm eagerly looking for folks to chime in with things that they think could be changed. And so we often have these conversations like in particular, this is most evident in the front of house, right? I mean, you can, we can talk about how to make ramen, but like running a service team is a wholly entirely different skill set. And so I rely heavily on my front of house lead Jake to like kind of push that forward and to make those things work, you know, to make sure that the servers know, how to talk about the food, how to upsell, how to give good service, how to check in on people, how to, you know, gently nudge people out when they're kind of hitting their, their period of their window for the reservation and all of these like nitty gritty things in a restaurant that people probably don't even recognize are happening. I certainly didn't know. And so I needed to lean in on that team to be able to do that. And so far, I think that's been very helpful. Like I don't have enough time to be all hands on on all those pieces. I'm working 16 yeah. hours a day. I still can't do it. Right. So, uh, having folks who are eager to step in and do that, I think has been helpful. Um, and I got lucky, frankly, by finding these people, Yeah, I just got lucky that there's no two ways about it, but, uh, I lean in on others all the time. Like at my old job, I was very good at delegating. Like <laughs> I was very good at being like, I can't, I don't have time for this. Or like, I think this is something you should do, or I'm going to show you how to do this. And then, because there's lots of different layers to delegation. I think a lot of people misconstrue this idea of delegation as you tell somebody to do something, they do it. But it's like delegation can exist on a continuum where the first level of delegation is I'm going to do this and you're going to shadow me and ask questions all the way to I wrote it down and you just do it. I'm not going to watch you do it. And all in between. And it's contingent on the amount of competency the employee has, the level of trust you have in the employee, the relationship you have with the employee, and also just the general attitude the employee has towards the work. And all of those factors come together to determine how you should delegate to an employee. So I have some employees that I need to be a little more hands-on with when I'm like, hey, this is how we need to like show you how to strain the noodle from the basket. A kind of seemingly arbitrary task that like is actually quite fundamental to the success of the dish. 
right? Whereas conversely, I have cooks where I'm like, hey, make me so tired. She's like, oh, okay. And she just goes off and does it because she knows how to do it, right? Like, and I don't even yeah. need to say much besides you just go do it now. So it, knowing that art of delegation, I think it's been important, but I am still fairly hands-on in so much that we're still really young. And I think that there needs to be a level of QC in the business to make sure that the things that are coming out of the restaurant are good. Like I'm still in service every day, right? I'm on expo. I'm yeah. looking overlooking every single bowl that leaves the kitchen. I'm not necessarily cooking everything, but I am tasting it, checking it, making sure it looks beautiful, making sure it's presentable, getting it to the right tables, making sure that the team knows what they need to be working on during service at any point in time. Uh, identifying if we're low on pars or if we need to pause for a second, talking in front of house, like I'm still pretty hands-on. And so the sustainability element of it is like that, what happens in the future for that? That can't be forever, right? Like I can't just be so hands-on. But right yeah. now it's month three. So it's like, it's probably okay to still be pretty hands-on. The team still No, has, I think you should be hands-on for a lot longer. A lot if longer. You can, you know, Agree. Because because it is, is it's your brand. It's your, exactly. it's your baby. Exactly. You, know, you, you can't just like give birth and then hand it and off. Then eject. And then, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, well, you can, but you shouldn't uh, though. You shouldn't. Yeah. And the, this ramen, you know, like what was the goal of this ramen shop? Like I didn't have any big goals beyond just open a ramen shop. I don't have like a big expansion plan. I don't have like a big franchise model plan. I just wanted to open a ramen shop. So like the bucket list is achieved in that way. Now we're still figuring out what the next goal is. Like make it better and better, make customers happy, make cool ramen, like make new dishes. Like that's kind of the phase I'm at right now. It's very short term, which is sort of odd. I normally come into these things with long-term ideas. I just wanted to open a ramen shop and it's open. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, well, I opened a ramen shop. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, made that though. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome really nuts, to the club. <laughs> really crazy. But yeah, look, we're 20 minutes into this conversation and we have yet to talk about the food. I mean, that, that yes. kind of gives you an idea of what opening a ramen shop is like and how it's you true. have to run it. But, you know, let's let's kind of get into the food here. We're, you have your signature miso bowl, Yakushi right? Miso. Mm -hmm. And tell me about the rest. So let's talk about the miso because the miso was really it drove the whole design of the restaurant in a lot of ways, right? Like I had to install a wok with a real wok burner to be able to make this miso. And yeah. there were unanticipated things about that, right? A miso, you, when you make four misos in that wok versus one miso in that wok, you have to teach the cooks to like treat it differently. There's different techniques involved, but the wok is critical to this, this miso ramen. I remember the first time I actually ended up doing it in a wok because for a long time in these pop-ups, I was not making miso ramen in a wok. Like I was just tossing tire in a bowl and whisking it with the soup. And it was delicious, but it was not kind of this dream borderline fetishized idea I had in my mind of what this ramen was supposed to be. There's yeah. something about the wok treatment that just changes this ramen very fundamentally. And so maybe like a week before I opened, I was just doing some test runs, like just kind of testing things out. And I just remember like making a bowl of miso ramen with just soup, noodles, oil and a little green onion, right? Like very simple, no chashu, no, no toppings really. And I put it down and I remember eating it and being like, oh my God, I think we, we got there. Like we got the ramen that I've been chasing for 13 years. And it's because of that wok. That wok is so yeah. integral to the flavor in a way that I don't think is replicable even on the stove, even on induction, even on any other technique. You can't just like roast the tare in advance and get the flavor. 
the wok hay with the bean sprout is just such a nostalgic, important flavor to that dish. So we needed a wok and I wanted a wok station, which takes up a lot of room. Like restaurants have real estate, but I wanted a wok station. So we got a wok station and it's just like this beautiful thing where like there's beautiful flame cascades into the air when you're hitting those bean sprouts real hard and that lard, it's like the most beautiful thing ever. And it's just, it's just, I don't think I've ever had a bowl of miso ramen like this in the United States, frankly. And that's not to brag. I just think that that flavor is just so, it just like means a lot to me that like wok flavor means a lot to me. It has represented a thing I've been chasing for 13 years and to finally be able to put it out is like very humbling, very emotional and very critical. So the miso ramen is the flagship because it means so much to me as as part of my cooking journey, right? Like Mm -hmm. I feel like I've been chasing this forever and to get even as close as I've been able to get is really quite, it's just a lot. It's like very overwhelming. So I think I probably cried when I ate this thing. It was just (laughs) crazy. It was like so nuts. So compare it to a bowl maybe you might have had in Hokkaido or Sapporo when you're living there. Do you, do you think there is something where you can say, oh, I took a lot of inspiration from this shop? Yeah, I took tons of inspo from the the three legendary triads of miso ramen. So like Ajino Sanpei invents miso ramen. They're the ones who identify the larding wok, the sauteing of vegetables. They use onion currently. Most shops after use bean sprout. I'm using I'm using bean sprout. I like the flavor of the bean sprout more, but that larded wok is super critical. Like every shop in that lineage henceforth is using a larded wok in some capacity and we're using lard. I take some inspiration from, you know, Sumida and Junnen who use a darker miso blend. The blend that we use has a lot of shinchu, but it also has red and it has a notable amount of hacho in it. That's the thing that we started. I started maybe five years ago with some, fo- you know, the 210 Jack folks kind of were like, put hacho in it. I was like, all right, fuck it. And I did it. And I really liked it. Um, but I like that idea of darkening the miso profile a little bit more, but still having the fruitiness and balancing the three together. And then, you know, Saimi, who's probably still the most legendary miso ramen shop in Hokkaido right now, their, you know, their treatment of the soup is much more delicate, I think. It's not as over the top. So we tried to balance it some. I think that's probably the place I'm trying to improve the most on. I think our miso ramen's still coming out pretty rich. It's pretty rich right now. It's got a lot of fat on it. The soup gets highly emulsified in that wok because it just boils and boils and boils after the treatment. You like we're getting lots of froth and kind of like deep emulsification in that in that wok. And so we're trying to figure out like what is the sweet spot of of balance on the bowl. Yeah. And then there were just other things I started doing. Like some shops sear the miso. That's sort of unorthodox, but some shops sear it. And I just like the flavor of like a really quick sear on the wok before we added the soup. Um, so we started doing that. So it's like a lot of little bits and pieces from different elements to come at this more cohesive thing, right? Like nice. I also took inspiration from you and other ramen chefs who like really love aroma oil and think very critically about the oil content. Like in Hokkaido at Sumina and Juna, they just put lard on and it's just like a gross yeah. amount of lard, like <laughs> gut busting lard and it's delicious, but it's like, it's not an aroma oil. I liked the way that the aroma oil played with it. And in fact, I'd gotten feedback that when I didn't have the aroma oil, the dish felt much more one dimensional, right? Mm-hmm. So it needed that to push it through. So we have a larded wok, but we're also putting aroma oil at the bottom of the bowl, right? We're using 
fat in two different layers, basically, to to finalize this dish, which I think, you know, Kezo, you've done this forever of like two different aroma oils or like two different, so, you know, two different fats or like two different components of the same component together in the bowl. So, yeah, aroma oils are very key. So uh, key. To add to the flavor, you know, people think it's aroma, but that aroma really changes the flavor of the bowl. Totally. I mean, we're talking like a, a, this this miso ramen went from being really complicated and interesting to being super flat, super one-dimensional, kind of boring. Like it's really critical. That aroma yeah. changes the bowl completely. Even if it's a simple aroma oil. Like we have some pretty simple aroma oils at Akahoshi right now. We've got the miso oil, which is like lard with ginger, garlic, and onion. That's, you know, we've got like a chili oil. That one's more the most complicated. But then we've got like a Negi Nebo oil, again, inspired by Keizo Shimamoto. <laughs> How could you not be? <laughs> but that's like three ingredients, right? Like it's not, it in itself is not inherently complicated, but it adds so much to the dish. It's so vital to what it's being used in. It's not replicable. Um, and it's like the secret sauce of any good ramen, I think, is just a little touch of aroma oil just carries it over the top. It it highlights all of the flavors you're trying to implement because of those fat soluble flavor compounds. And I just have to accept that like, yeah, I could be lazy and just use lard and just buy lard and use it. But the aroma oil just makes it, it's just way better. So, yeah, you know, part of opening this ramen shop has been understanding that sometimes the recipes are hard and they just, they have to be hard because it's better when they're hard. Like we're doing a curry ramen right now and that paste is hard to make. It's really hard. It's got like, (laughs) 16, 17 ingredients in it. And it's like stages and you got to blend some stuff and slow cook it, but not burn it. And, you know, it's like, it's hard, but when you do it that way, it's better. You just have to accept that it's better when you do it the right way. And Oh, so you're not just throwing spice in the bowl and that's it. No, no, no. So that's the special this month. So you want to talk about the menu. We've got four standard items that pretty much are on forever. I don't think I'll ever get rid Mm -hmm. of them. The miso. We have a shoyu, which is like a niboshi shoyu. Uh, I think people either love that one or they hate it because the niboshi flavor can sometimes be very polarizing, but I really like it. So it's on forever. Then we've got two soupless ramens, a soupless tantan men with a lot of Szechuan peppercorn and some other kind of interesting flavors and sesame. And then we've got an abra soba inspired dish that has like garlic and soy sauce and textures and stuff. And it's kind of fun. And so, and I just, I, as an Italian American, I just love soupless ramen a lot. So I just was like, I need a couple of these on. Like I just have to have them. I love pasta. I got to put a couple soupless ramens on. And so we're making two different noodles then for those four different dishes, right? We have the Sapporo style noodle and then we're making the Maze Soba noodle. And yeah. right now I'm the only one making the noodles. So if you talk about delegation, I have not delegated that <laughs> at all. I'm still the guy on the noodle machine. Um, but I Is get there a reason every- for that or do you think yes. that you can make it? the best still and you can't teach it or it's really, I don't think I know it well enough to be able to teach it. So delegation really works. Like there are things that just happen in noodle making that I don't understand. Like I just, it just happened. It's like the day was weird. I felt bizarre. I made the noodles weird, right? Like, I don't know why it's like as an example, <laughs> yeah, I saw your post on Instagram. Yeah. So like I, I'm in a bad mood and the noodles are like, they're coming together like terribly. They're it's, things are tearing. The crumble is not good. The, the, the dough is like ripping as it's rolling. It's just like, things are bad. And I don't really know why yet. I haven't been able to identify what about my practice is causing these things. I've gotten advice from some people like Scott 
LaChapelle was in my DMs a couple of days ago, like, oh, I can do this, this, this. And I tried it. And like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So it's like figuring out how to yeah. be better at noodle making. It's just going to take more experience, I think. And I don't have the experience. We're on month three of me making noodles every day. Like that's not a lot of time to be making noodles to be able to like really coach someone through that process of doing it. And I feel like noodle making is extremely complicated in a lot of ways because of a lot of extraneous factors. Kezo, you know this better than anyone, having run a micro noodle factory for a while. Like, noodles are hard. Like, they're really hard. Yeah, it's definitely hard to teach someone like what to do in the event that you've or something has gone wrong and how to fix it. Like a lot right. of times, like even, I'm sure you've had this. Something went wrong, and you're like, "Oh crap! I got to start over, throw it all out." But there are times where you can actually save it if you know what you're doing. Yeah. So that part, yeah, I can see how it gets frustrating and it just gets, it starts to escalate and you're like, crap, I hate this. But you know, the, the more you well, do for it. For me, it's more, I don't know enough about what caused the issue and therefore yeah. how to coach someone through the issue. And so it doesn't feel fair yet to be like, I'm going to hire a full-time noodle maker and just give them a recipe and then run away. Like that's not the right move either, right? So I still have more learning to do before that piece gets delegated out is how I feel about it. But uh, it's not because I have hubris about, oh, I make the best noodles or anything. It's just like I genuinely don't think I'm ready to teach someone yet. I still have more to learn for myself before I can go ahead and teach somebody about it. But I would say that the noodles broadly are pretty fucking good, man. (laughs) Coming out of this ramen shop, like – I think the feedback we get is that actually right now the noodles are the best part of the bowl, like in a lot of ways, because we're making some very strange noodles for the Chicago lands, you know, the Chicago landscape. No one's making yeah. a mazasoba noodle in Chicago. So like that's already a novelty. And certainly no one is making a Sapporo style ramen noodle that's been aged at room temperature. You know, a lot of people are kind of making a very consistently similar noodle. It's a lower hydration noodle. Maybe it's got a little egg in it. It's a higher protein noodle. It's kind of in the Hakata thin, snappy realm, right? So for a shop to be making a curly noodle that's got more of this chew and bounce is just, I think, fundamentally novel. And so people find that very appealing, right? Um, I find it appealing. I mean, Well, let's talk about the the aging of the noodles real quick. Mm -hmm. Like I know you you had this like process in the past where you do room temp age. Mm -hmm. Like now that you have a shop and you're like busy, you're selling out, you're, you have line out the door, like, are you able to still, you know, use that method and I age am, them as long as you want? But it's, you can't age it perfectly. Like sometimes you only get a day because like you're just behind on inventory, right? Like Maybe not even enough. a day, you know? <laughs> I haven't run into that <laughs> issue. One time for Maze Soba, we were like, oh, well, you're going to have to use some of the ones I made this morning, right? But like, I have like a little Excel spreadsheet that plans my inventory. So I just know like, now that we're at month two or month three, I have a good sense of how many bowls of each kind I sell on a given day. So I can plan my inventory production based on what I expect to sell and always have my surplus ready. But like, yeah, if I want to age a thing for multiple days, it's kind of weird. You don't really know. (laughs) A day is okay because like you just know like I can't use that today, right? I'll use it tomorrow. But like multiple days out, it's tricky. It gets real tricky in a, in a, in a minute. Yeah, I so, mean, you could you could mass produce and and as much as you want, but there's still that trickiness of the space, the fridge space, like the, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. room temp space. You know, you can't just leave them out on the dining room floor. You know? Right, right. And then, you know, yeah, I can't just candidly. I do not have the mental capacity to do more than like 300 portions in a day. Like, I know some of you guys have done like. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be a thousand noodles today. It's like there's no way. 
you could not, I could not do it. I would be, I would be shattered. As yeah. A human don't being. do it. Don't do it. <laughs> I think the most I can, I can really only get away with three cycles. That's, so that's about 300 portions for those listening. So that's three rounds of doing the noodles. After I do that, I'm just like, whew, I got nothing left in the tank right now, you know? And maybe that says something about my character, but I just think I have to plan my day around the fact that I know that's my max capacity, right? That's what I'm really able to accomplish in a given day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not the noodle making that's just tricky. It's making the noodle while acknowledging that you have to do a lot of other stuff and you have to be available and you got to run the business. It's like, Kaza, you alluded to this, but I think running a restaurant is like 10% cooking and 90% ancillary stuff about yeah. the business of cooking and the business of running a restaurant. I was prepared for that, but not as much, I think. But I was also not prepared for my staff being willing to step up and and, and help out in all of the ways that they do, right? Like I thought I'd yeah. have to be more hands-on than I actually am. Yeah, that's that's <clears throat> that's good. But I'm sure with your following, you know, I mean, I if I lived out there, I would definitely want to help you. <laughs> I think a lot of people say they want to help. And then when you actually ask, they're like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's like in life the, in general. <laughs> yeah. The chef community. Yeah. It's like the chef community is really tight in Chicago, but people are busy, man. Like yeah, running a restaurant is a busy life. It's super busy. Like this is the first Monday where I've genuinely had to not go into the restaurant in like since opening. Basically I, I don't have to be there today. That is a rarity. You know, normally I am there either making noodles or I'm helping the cleaning crew or I'm uh, taking orders, receiving orders, you know, just sort of doing some admin stuff, getting inventory checked. Like there's a lot of non cooking stuff that you could be doing on a day off that you're kind of doing, you know? Yeah, totally understand. But let, let's get back to the actual ramen. Yeah. Uh, so, the, so the base <laughs> soup that you use, what do you mean? Is it a Chintan. It's a chintan. Tonkotsu. Just a basic torigara chintan. It's like three ingredients. It's like chickens, mm -hmm. onions, and garlic. It's the same one I've been using forever. Like I've been using this this base recipe indefinitely, pretty much since the first pop up I did. It's kind of the recipe that I, I've been using, and we just focus really heavily on the tare to make sure that it, and the aroma oil to make sure it carries through. But however, so, we have specials, and those often yeah. have a different soup, right? Yeah. So, so how, how has that been, though? Like, before we get into the specials, you know, making the soup and the noodles and the miso tare and everything, like, how, how has that balance been going? Like, it, it's, it's a whole process, right? You have to really anticipate what's going to be gone before the other and, and make it cohesive and yeah. the circle of ramen life right there. Right? Yeah. So we make the soup fresh every day, which helps, I think. Like, and I kind of know, like our restaurant has just hit max capacity pretty quickly. So I just kind of know, like, I'm going to sell this number of dishes every day. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to be between 160 and 108 bowls, 180 bowls of ramen a day. It's somewhere in that ballpark. If we don't, if we don't have that number, something bizarre happened, frankly. So predictability of the day has helped a lot. I don't know if that's always the case for a business, like a restaurant, but Ours is fairly predictable. Like if you were to yeah. look at how many of a miso ramen I sell, it doesn't vary too much. And the same with the shoyu. It's like I sell about 80 to 90 misos a day, 30 to 40 shoyu. So I know like, okay, if a batch of miso tire is 200 portions, I know I got to make it pretty much every other day, right? So you're going to yeah. do Monday, Tuesday, Monday, skip Tuesday, Wednesday. And we just make sure that I'm there for the prep team to like 
talk them through about what needs to be done that day. And my prep team knows the recipes now and they can execute them consistently, right? I'm lucky in that they're all grammed out and they're kind of precise. So it doesn't require as much judgment, I think. But, you know, we just, yeah, there is a little bit of anticipatory stuff. And frankly, initially I was terrible at this. And so we would just run out of stuff all the time, (laughs) all the time, you know, like, oh, we're out of soup and we still run out of soup. Like we run out of stuff. Like I I haven't figured out that skill set a hundred percent, but because weird things will happen, right? Like, I don't know, one day you make a soup and you got a certain amount of it. And then another day you made the same recipe and you got a different amount of it for some reason. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. It's just black wizardry. I don't, I don't know <laughs> It's only 18 quarts today. It was supposed to be 25. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Did you boil it too hard? I don't know. It looks fine. Bricks is okay, right? Like it just happens. Just weird stuff happens. And, and that's like kind of unpredictable. And yeah, not all chickens are the that. same size. <laughs> right. Not all chickens are the same size, you know? It's true. So there is this element of like, I I mean, we're just going to run out sometime. We just accept that. But but you manage really- it because you have that reservation system, right? So you kind of know how many people are coming every day. At least it's not really though. Beginning. Not really though. Here's why. In the reservations, we only allot about 80 to 90 seats a day, 80 to 90 covers a day, but we're doing 150 to 160 a day. So solid 60 people are just walking in, coming in, sitting down, having a bowl of ramen. And sometimes that's more. And sometimes they order two bowls of ramen. And so like there are days where we had 160 guests, but they ordered 180, 185 bowls of ramen. Cause yeah, I mean, I'm, it's like me at, at Kezo's shop. It's like, oh, I got to show you, I got to get the Shio now. Right. Like I got to have two, you know, there are people like that at my shop and I did not anticipate that either. I expected a more kind of one bowl per person situation. And sometimes you get more than less. I think initially everyone was ordering extra ramen, right. In the mm-hmm. initial stages of this, every single customer we had come in was like, I want another one. So like we'd have 150 people, but they'd order 190 bowls of ramen. Like just yeah. crazy. And that was really hard to predict because you like, you expect a certain number of people to come in. How much of this show you tired do I need to make? Oh, well, actually I just sold 15 more of them than I expected. So I'm out. Right. I'm out. And yeah, it's, it's, I would say the inventory management is probably still the, my weakest part uh, of the business so far, hands down. Like it's a lot, it's yeah. a lot of buying. It's a lot of like expecting when we need more miso, certain distributors only sell you things at certain times. So you got to like really be on and you got to make sure you get the order in, you know, it's not like I can just submit a thing and get it tomorrow. Like sometimes the miso only comes on Friday, so I better have enough miso. Like if I run out, I'm just screwed. Like there's nothing else you can do, you know, Yeah, that's happened a lot. (laughs) Countless times, frankly. (laughs) Yeah. I do think that is the hardest part to deal with for a new restaurant owner new business owner in the industry because you're Mm -hmm. not used to it, right? You're not used to like judging how many of these things you need. And then, you know, and then, and then if you're starting to train people to do that as well, like, you know, the people you train might not know that either and they'll be making something. And at the last second they go to make another one and be like, Hey, we don't have any more sugar. Uh It's like, it's like, why didn't you tell me this when you ran out <laughs> right. yesterday? Like, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but th- those like, are fun, I cannot I tell you how many times during service was like, oh, we're out of scallions. Like somebody's got to go slice some more in the back, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it's like every, it's like that's got to happen at least once or twice a week. Like we just have not figured out 
you're still figuring out, I think the term is pars, right? Like what is the amount you need to have on hand to get it through a service? Like we're still figuring out what that number is and it's changing and it's variable. Like, you know, one cook might use more of a, a given topping than another. So like that's going to eat into the quantity or one cook might not use the sufficient amount of a topping. And like, you might notice it, you might not notice it. You might, you might or get some random person might have ordered three extra servings of uh, bamboo shoots. And suddenly it's like, Oh, I thought I had enough. And now I'm like kind of running it close. Right. Like yeah, inventory management is a weird thing in restaurants for sure that I did not anticipate at all. Right. I just assumed you buy stuff, you make it, sell it. And it's not that it's the system of holding the inventory is, is a really critical one. And it's critical to the bottom line too, because of things like spoilage, right? Like if the food goes bad, you make too much of this thing and you don't get to sell all of it. And now you throw it away. It's like, well, that sucks too bad for you, man. Like, yeah, I think you're lucky that everything is selling out, you know, and running out. It's a lot yeah. better problem to have than, than having throwing away. Yeah. yeah. Cause then your cost of goods sold just skyrockets and your business gets in trouble, you know? And that was one of the reasons why I only had four ramens on the menu initially too, was to reduce that burden. I think the more dishes you have as a restaurant, the harder that inventory management becomes, right? It's so yeah. difficult when, you know, I, I see a lot of these restaurants in Chicago and they're very complex, interesting menus. And it's like, man, are you making like three of those a day? Like, how do you figure out like how much you have to prep? Like, I know I'm going to sell at least 80 misos. So I know I got to make a lot of miso tare. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a tough, it's a tough game, man. It's a really tough game and we're definitely still figuring it out and I'm not very good at it, frankly. Yeah. I think that comes with experience, you know, it becomes second nature when you start feeling, you know, how the inventory is going. Like I remember there are times where, you know, I would eventually begin to notice, okay, that's like, why did we run out of scallions in that on the line? Like, that fast like you kind of know like you can see it as it's going down and you can you have to tell your cooks to adjust and to recognize these little points mm -hmm. where okay look this is how much if, if we're doing like 50 bowls in like an hour and a half or something two hours and you see it go down further than this then you know you have a problem you need to go lighter mm -hmm. like there's you know you, you start recognizing all that stuff i mean i yeah. i had I had like ramen burger. We were doing like 1500 burgers a day. Like that was like the hardest thing to plan. Like how much, how many bags of arugula do we need? So I'm constantly sitting there going like, okay, you went through one bag of arugula in like 20 minutes. No, no, no. We, we got to adjust. We got to pump the brakes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, those things you can't, you can't pump the brakes like at the last second either. Cause it's like, you need to really know how much you have left and how much you think you're going to sell like at all totally. times. Totally. to really manage that. So, I mean, it becomes second nature. But it is a really, like, it's a really important part of the business that I don't think I had any knowledge of before starting it. You know, yeah. we were just making ramen. And for a pop-up, you just buy the stuff and then you make the stuff and then it's sold and it's done. It's like, okay, cool. I ran into this a little bit at Ramen Lab, but I don't know. It just was different. It was only a week. You know, you don't really internalize it as much. It's just not, it wasn't the same. This is like a fundamentally, you know, I'm spending a lot of time on inventory, just making sure that things are in stock and that we make enough of everything and that we're ready to, we know what we need to prep the next day. 
right? Yeah. It's a lot of work, but it's kind of fun. Not going to lie. So, all right. What are, give me, give me one, like the, the biggest surprise after, you know, being open for a few months now, the biggest surprise in. Do you want an restaurant- optimistic surprise or a pessimistic surprise? <laughs> I want to hear both, man. I want to hear both right. sides. Positive surprise. I thought that this would physically destroy me and I would hate this within weeks of doing it. And it is physically extremely demanding work, but it has not destroyed me in that way yet. Like I have been able to lean in on my team and also I just enjoy the work so tremendously so far that it has been pretty noticeable that I'm able to handle it. Right. And it's getting better and better every week as my team gets stronger and we trust each other more and we, we learn things. So I was extremely surprised that I felt as good as I did at this point. I thought I was going to hate this shit. There was a large part of me opening this restaurant that felt like I'm going to hate this life. Like I don't, I don't, which sounds crazy. It's like, why are you opening a restaurant then? But it was like, I knew I needed to, I wanted to, it was a lifelong goal of mine. I've always wanted to open a restaurant and I wouldn't know if I'd be able to handle it unless I did it. Right. So do you, do you think like there are haters out there that think you want to, or they want you to fail? So does that drive you even more too? No, like, there are definitely haters for the record. Oh, so many haters, but <laughs> I think a like, vocal minority, but <laughs> yeah. they exist for sure. I definitely think I have a target on my back, but that's not really motivating for me. The motivation now is like, make this business a place where people want to work that makes awesome food for customers, right? Like, that's my motivation. I want my staff happy. I want my customers happy. If we can do that, then I feel very accomplished. Like that's a dream goal, right? Like that means the thing is more sustainable. That means that customers are coming back. That means that my staff want to come to work every day. Like that's, that's the dream. And the fruits of your labor, the fruits of this labor. I think, yeah. As long as you're enjoying that, I think you can work as hard as you want, want or as hard as you can. And like really not, you, you might not even know you're destroying your body because yeah. you're enjoying it so much, right? Like that yeah. that's kind of a scary I mean, thought. I too. am definitely fucking up my body. Like I probably need to go to physical therapy once the once we get our health insurance like in check. Like I, I there are things that I need to get checked out, frankly. Like I can tell yeah. that it's wearing on me already. So But let me just say this though. The human body is amazing. So yeah. these are things it that is. you might not be used to, like parts of your body moving and then you know, you feel like, cause I remember when I first started working in the ramen shop, I, after like a couple months, my left arm went numb from my elbow to my fingertip mm-hmm. and I didn't know what was going on, but I didn't go see a doctor and I just like kept working, um, going through it. And then eventually the body heals itself and I'm like, Hey, mm-hmm. it's not numb anymore, but I can do something 10 times stronger now. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I have. Yeah, exactly. Like I have certain numbness in my back, probably because of my posture, because of the noodle making, just being very intense on the back. And it's like, I probably need to go see a doctor, but also I can tell that like my body is adjusting to this too, right? Like the standing for 16 hours a day used to be so brutal and it's not nearly as brutal as it used to be. Like my legs don't hurt as much. My, my back doesn't hurt as much. Like it's getting better 
continuously. So yes, Kezo, when you said the body, you told me this many times, it always rings in my, my brain, like <laughs> the body adjusts, the body adjusts around. And I was like, ha whatever. And it's true. <laughs> it really does. It does. Yeah, it genuinely it does. does. And the body is amazing, but you have to recognize that your body is why you're able to do this work in a lot of ways. And so it needs to be treated with respect. So yeah, definitely negative- don't overdo it. I'm not saying that, you know, everyone has to gum on or like bear the pain <laughs> and just, just come on, just come yeah, on, man. Just, just go on. for it. Just do your best. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the optimistic one. Like I did not think I would adjust. I thought I would just be catapulted into torture and that would be it. And I have, a, I can feel my adjustments happening and I feel very optimistic about the ability to carry this through for the long term, which I did not think I was going to feel. That's a very, I know that sounds crazy to say, but it's true. I, I feel very optimistic about this restaurant right now. So what's the pessimistic surprise? I didn't, I, th- we, I kind of alluded to this. There's several. So I guess this is going to become a complaining <laughs> session, but here you go. I didn't realize how difficult it would be to solve problems that are like, in, you know, like basically everything in this restaurant is broken already because the previous tenants were really terrible tenants who did not maintain the space well. You know, the hoods weren't mm. cleaned regularly. The plumbing wasn't maintained regularly. The build out was done kind of in a hodgepodge shoddy way with cheap materials. So it's kind of, you know, anything that was existing needed to eventually be replaced. And a lot of that I just did not expect. And when it does break, it doesn't get quick, get fixed quickly. Like we had a toilet get like, like mortifyingly a toilet backed up and like one of the pipes that exited the building got clogged with some detritus of some kind. And it just like overflowed and spilled into uh, into the private bathroom and it was sewage water. So it smelled horrible and we had to close the thing off and you know, I can get it fixed, but it's going to cost me two grand. Right. Or I can wait. It's like, you have to make these choices and urgency is like, nothing is as urgent to you. Nothing is urgent to anybody else that it is to you. Right. Yeah. Like something seems super urgent to you and the company that handles it is like, we'll get it done. It'll be fixed. Yeah. We couldn't keep up with the number of hot, the amount of hot water we needed in the restaurant for a long time. Again, the previous tenants put like home hot water heaters in, in the space. So they were just not able to handle the demands of an actual restaurant. Mm-hmm. So it took like way too long to get an actual hot water heater installed. It took so long. And it's just because which sucks. Like we could have failed health inspection, frankly, if we didn't have that, you know, running at the time. Now it's fixed, but it took a long time. So I just am getting used to like, you have to be patient with the people who are helping you fix this thing, right? It's going to take time. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to take some time. Yeah. And being patient is one of those things. But, and so with that comes a regulation of stress, I think that I'm still trying to get better at. You know, I take this really seriously and this is like a culmination of a lot of work and it's very easy to feel the stress of that when things go wrong and to not burden my staff with that uh, has been a challenge, I think. But I think I'm, I'm better at that maybe than a lot of other people I'd say. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, man, those stresses, man, those, it's, I don't even want to think about it right now, but yeah, you know, I, I remember going through all those kind of things it's it's tough. It's really tough. I think the, that's part of the reason why I tell guys like you, like, don't open your own restaurant, because I know, like, I've been through all this bad stuff that's happened too, um, along with the good stuff. But, you know, seeing you now and enjoying opening Akahoshi and 
you know, it is your life. I, I feel better now. Like, I feel really happy for you. Were you like, nervous before? Of course I was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always nervous. All you guys, like you, Scott LaChapelle, you know, um, Menya Hosaki, that, like all you guys, when you open, like I'm totally nervous. But I know I just have faith because you guys really love what you do and I know you'll be fine. You know, it's really like kids going off to college, right? Yes. <laughs> like... Grandpa, Grandpa K is over <laughs> here overseeing his disciples. It's true though, but there's only a handful of us who are doing it this way. Like, yeah. and I think I get why it's really hard, like to make all this stuff and to focus all the attention and to, I mean, just make every single component. There's not a lot of ramen shops doing that right now. You know, you know, I, I'll tell you this, what I'm really impressed with is, you know, the number of seats you have and you being able to keep up with that too. Like you, you have what about a hundred seats in there? Mm-mm. No, 55, half oh, 55. as many, okay. as, <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot still for a ramen yeah, shop, right? It is. But keep in mind, we never fill it fully. There's just no way. Like when you have reservations, you have gaps. So it's not like a walk-in only situation where let's say I have two people sit at the counter. I'm chatting with them. They leave in 45 minutes or an hour or turn times are about 55 minutes. And we get the bowl to them fairly quickly. The next reservation might not be for another 30 minutes. So that, that seat is just empty. So there is a level of inefficiency when it comes to reservations, right? At the expense mm-hmm. of efficiency, you instead get happier customers I like to think right like your customers are basically happy that they don't have to wait in a line for two hours to come and get the ramen or they don't have to like put a name down and then leave and hope they can get in um there's a there's a segment of the population that would prefer to just get a reservation right and if they don't get a reservation that sucks but it's okay right it's like it's better that than trying my luck it's kind of how they feel and I'm willing to take a loss essentially on the number of customers I can serve to make those customers happy. Like to me, it's more worth it. Right. But yeah, sometimes people eat quick and then they bounce and you're like, Oh, that table's just gonna be empty now for like another 30 minutes. And sometimes they eat, they take a long time and it's like, well, I had another <laughs> guest who's supposed to sit there and they can't now. So what do I do? Right? Like we have 55 seats, but it's never 55 people in the restaurant. It's definitely less than that at any one point in time. And gotcha. That's part of it. The second thing is it's America. So people take longer to eat. Like, Have you had to kick out anybody? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I wouldn't have known how to do that. I, again, I rely heavily on my front of house lead, Jake. He's awesome. He know he's, he's an industry vet. He's just dealt with a lot of these challenges before. So he knows how to like navigate this and how to get the servers to kind of like gently say like, Hey, you know, we have a reservation coming in next. Uh, would you be willing to move to the window and finish your cocktails there, et cetera, et cetera. Like the way in which you frame the discussion, right. is very yeah. critical to maintain the, the experience because they're going to eat the ramen and they're going to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> want to hang out. It's fun. It's fun. They're having a night out, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's the difference with Japan. Like here you really have to be considerate and nice about what you say in Japan. They'll be like, get out. Like, yeah, you see like the line, get out, <laughs> like, yeah. like no talking. <laughs> it's, it's true. Right. It's like we, there is a, it's funny. It's like, you think that this, the service is really good in Japan, but in ramen shops, a lot of times it's very terse, very much like here it is. You ate it. Please go. Right. Like, please get out of here now. 
next person yeah. is coming down, right? Like I, I would never be able to get away with that in my ramen shop. And I just acknowledge that. And that's why we have more seats. Cause I just know people are going to take longer and I need the buffer. Like, you know, we're serving 150 to 180 bowls of ramen a day in a four hour window. That's pretty good, but it's only because I have 55 seats. If I only had 10, I wouldn't be able to, they would take too long. Right. So yeah. I got lucky and kind of like, I remember initially I thought it was too many, but in, and now I don't think it's too many. I think it's probably a, a right sweet spot for a restaurant where our, our kitchen is very busy at that capacity. Like we're for four hours, we're just making ramen. You know, we're just, we're cranking the whole day. Cause I, only, I also only have one noodle boiler. So like, I really gotta be we're pushing it, you know, and only one walk, right. And one walk. Yeah. So we really can't do more than six bowls at a time. And I can't do more than like three or four misos at a time. Yeah. All right. Speaking of getting out of here, I know you got to make a reservation drop. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm down <laughs> to do it live. I, I'm ready. I'm at the, I just got to hit publish and it goes and then it's done. I think people don't realize this, like how hands-on a lot of this silly stuff is. Like I will literally hit a button to let the reservations go live. That's All true. Right. Like, isn't that funny though? Like yeah. you would think the technology would automate this stuff. I don't know. All right. So since we have a little more time, like the reservation system, so basically you, you hit a button, it goes live and how long does it take to sell out? I see your stories. Oh, we only had a couple left. Hurry up. You know, it's pretty wild. It's pretty bonkers. I don't, I think that's been the most humbling thing is just people really seem to want to go to this ramen shop and that's very, it's very humbling. It's very flattering. It's very intimidating at the same time. I mean, you talked to Kevin about this, I'm sure, right? It's like, yeah, I don't understand it entirely. I think Chicago really loves ramen and it's just, I don't know. I don't really get it. I mean, I think we make great ramen. Don't get me wrong. Like I love, <laughs> I eat the ramen every day. So I do genuinely love the ramen that we make, but it's, I don't know. People just seem to really want to get in this ramen shop. I, I don't understand. So do you have customers that come every week? Every Couple. few days, every day? Not every day. I've had, we definitely have some regulars, but it is very hard to get in, right? Like even for a walk-in, you know, we're often quoting people an hour wait time to be able to get into the shop after we open. You know, like on Saturday, we have like a line of like 40 or 50 people outside. It's pretty crazy. It's like at that stage, someone's not going to be able to get in immediately, right? They're going to have to wait. And we don't want to overload the kitchen and have suddenly 50 bowls of ramen to make all at once. So we need to like pace when people are coming in so that we're able to deliver the ramen an appropriate period of time. They're not waiting too long. So there's a lot of like logistical challenges to, you know, making sure people get seated and have a good experience, right? It's not just ramen. I think a lot of yeah. people think you're going to open a ramen shop and just make ramen, but it's not. It's a lot of other stuff. It's a lot of like expectation setting with customers and, figuring out what they like and making sure they have a good time. I want my, I want people to have a good time at my shop. Like I put a lot of blood, sweat and tears in this place. I hope that they enjoy it, you know, and enjoyment in America is not just food. It's the way the place looks and the service and the atmosphere and the music and the people comment on the music all day long. They're like, Oh man, the playlist is so cool. Like in my mind, I had no idea this is even <laughs> a problem. Like I just assume like just play some music. It's fine. But like, it's a big part of it for a lot of people. Right. Oh, like, yeah. It's an experience. It's an experience. It's that is fundamentally the difference between American dining and Japanese dining. I think like the experience of dining in a ramen shop in Japan is that you're in Japan. So part of the experience is just like being in that country a lot of the time. 
as an American, as a foreigner. For a, for a native Japanese person, I would assume it's just like, I just wanted ramen. I got it. I got it. <laughs> or the line is the experience, right? Yeah. Well, so let's get into that. Like 55 seats, that's not your normal traditional ramen shop in Japan. God, do, no. do people come in expecting like a lot of sides? I know your menu is, is pretty minimal. Like you, you keep it that way on purpose with, you know, a few ramen on the menu and, and not many like appetizers. Do people come in wanting to like hang out, eat appetizers? Um, we get a couple of those comments. I wouldn't say it's outrageously pervasive though. Like, I think some folks do, but I also think some folks appreciate that the menu is really tight. So they don't feel like they're missing out per se. Like initially yeah. everyone was buying every ramen because they wanted to try everything. But now it's like, hey, if I only get the abra soba today, I'm not going to sweat it because I know I can come back next week and try the show you or whatever. And it's not the end of the world that I didn't get to try everything all at once. And I just knew I could not make appetizers like our kitchen would be stretched too thin and I don't know enough about like what makes a delicious appetizer. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. or a dessert, like a dessert would be even harder, I think. Right. So like, I just had to, I had to make what I knew I could make, what I knew I could teach somebody how to make, right. Which is ramen. And there's just like a large target on my back. I think in a lot of ways too, right. This restaurant opened very, very like talked about in a weird way, yeah. which I want to be very clear. I have not spent any money on any marketing. Any buzz that has emerged from this is like totally out of my control. Like I, if a person wants to talk to me, then they talk to me and that's it. Like I have just done, I have just talked to people when they've asked to talk to me. So that buzz is purely based on external factors at work here, which is a little challenging, frankly, because it's like who sets the expectation now? It's not me anymore. It's not like me coming out and saying like, here's what I think this is supposed to be. Here's what the experience is. It's this weird zeitgeist of external people talking about the restaurant. Right. So I don't know. We do the best that we can basically. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit. The PR aspect of things. Like you said, you, it's all natural. You don't have PR or anything. Do you feel like you'd be better off with someone managing that? Um, I mean, no. I have my own opinions with it, um, but as far as like telling that story, like keeping your story consistent, like, do you think it's it's okay if you're handling that? Like, is that too much pressure on you? I don't think so. I don't think I would need PR, frankly. I think that it might have been helpful for some maybe media training, but I also think that half the reason people want to come to this ramen shop is because there's like an authenticity of the human expression element here. Not everybody. Some people just heard on TikTok that it was a cool ramen shop and they want to go. But some people heard there's this guy who just loves ramen and makes ramen and they want to try his ramen. Yeah. Your PR that, is decades in the making. I guess. I mean, it's not planned. <laughs> yeah, like, I can't even explain it. I just, I mean, Keizo, you remember like I was just, I joined Instagram like, I don't know, eight years ago and I was posting random shit that I made and like, I remember you commented like, looks good, man. And I was like, oh man, Keizo commented on this thing. That was the extent of the plan. It's just like, I just want to like talk to other people who make ramen and like learn more about ramen. There was no like, it's just because ramen is fun and ramen yeah. is delicious and I love ramen. Like this thing has just gradually built into its own thing through no intention beyond making ramen and making delicious ramen, right? Like 
that that's really all this is supposed to be. And I think that's what's helped keep me motivated is I just get to make delicious ramen, make the ramen I want and like in a space that like I got to to do it in. And I think people are interested in that and that's really cool, but it's not like for anything beyond just me being interested in it. It's it's just authentically mine, you know. Yeah. Do you think being in Chicago helped with that as far as the ramen scene in Chicago? Yes, because if I was in New York or LA, it'd be so much more competitive. It'd just be way more competitive, right? There's a good number of ramen shops in Chicago, but you know, I think ramen is still in a sort of infancy. It hasn't reached the maturation that it had in LA or New York, certainly, right? Like you can still see new ramen shops opening in Chicago without old ones closing, right? Whereas like in New yeah. York, I think if a new one opens, it's kind of because a, another one closed basically, which is pretty wild. Yeah, it's 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 a tough time for ramen right now. I think Chicago is kind of in that, uh, the phase of new ramen shops opening and, and shops are still improving and, you know, people are putting their craft into it. But uh, I feel like in other parts, in other big cities, um, you know, I really hate to say this, but it's being becoming dominated by chains. Totally. You know, all the mom and pop shops are closing and you know, you, you feel it, you see it. And it, it's, it's kind of discouraging and disappointing in that aspect and kind of makes me want to open up a shop again, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? But, Kezo? Is that so? Yeah. But oh, you man. know, it, it's, it's tough. Like uh, even like you say, for me, it's, it's the money, right? Money has not been available to me lately. So it's like, how do I open a shop? with least amount of money and continue to do it successfully. So mm-hmm. it, that that's the hardest part. And that that's what I don't want to like get mixed up in again. If I do spend money on a shop and then failing, like that's the biggest fear now because I have a family. I know. Um, and be- to be honest, like the capital is the worst part. Like yeah. if you could open a ramen shop for nothing, then it's great. Cause you get to do all the hustle and like, Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but there's not a loss. But like, it's fucking expensive. It's fucking expensive. Even at, even when you barely do anything, it's still going to be expensive, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so. and then, I mean, you didn't have to take on any investors, luckily. Yeah, but I wouldn't do it again. Like, yeah. honestly, if I were to do another ramen shop, which I don't, I have no intention of doing that right now. I'm kind of just, I'm cool <laughs> with one. One is great. Like, one is plenty. If I were to open another one, though, I would probably use investor money. It's like so stressful to just watch your literal savings just get burned to a crisp. Like, it's so, and I'm sure there's stress about investor money too, but just like, I, the most stressful part of all of this has just been money, hands down. Money is the most stressful part about all of this because it drives everything else. Without money, I can't pay my staff. Without money, I can't make sure that I have a nest egg if things get broken. Without money, I can't make sure that my own things in my life get paid for. Like I still have to pay for my rent. I have to make sure that I have a roof over my head. It's stressful. It's fucking stressful, yeah. dude. It's really stressful. So if you have someone else who can bankroll it, it's not as stressful theoretically. I don't know. I'm sure there's other I, I think it's, yeah, it's a different type of stress, different type yeah. of pressure. I mean, I've been through both. Like I've, you know, the first ramen shack was just built by me. I mean, yeah. A lot of my companies were, and then, you know, I did the 
over in California here, we opened up Roman Shack with, with an investor and that kind of didn't work out. I mean, I've done a lot of partnerships too. Uh, it's, it's tough. Like being a creative person and having like building your brand and spending like your life doing something and like creating all of this to have someone come in and be like, okay, I'm going to invest this money and then I'm going to own pretty much mm-hmm. 80, 80 to 90% of it. And it's like, mm-hmm. whoa, like <laughs> where's the value like in what right. I've done for Who the past you? 20 right. years, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if there's no monetary value to that, it's like, that's the most, like, that's the this most discouraging part. Like, like totally, dude, I spent all this time and effort learning this, building this, and then someone wants to come in and just kind of take it from you. That, that, that is tough. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I'm sure it's a different tension, but it's all still a tension around money, which sucks. Like it does suck. You and I just want to make awesome ramen. It sucks that it has to like be to do it at a restaurant level requires now an investment and a nervousness and anxiety about its financialness. Like, you know, I'm, I'm charging a lot of money for ramen. Like this is not like the $10 bowls of ramen that you used to serve at ramen shack eight years ago or whatever. It's like I'm 19 bucks for a base bowl. That's a lot of money. That's not the same. Like ramen is it, it, and it, it requires that price in order for this restaurant to work. Like, in order for me to pay my staff, like right now my cooks are making like $25 an hour, you know, like they need to be paid well. They deserve to be paid well, but that means I have to charge a certain amount of money. It's just like, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to balance all that too. You know, like you're, yeah. you charge a lot, but a lot of it's going to staff, which deservedly right. so they should get. Um, but it's, it's not like the seventies or eighties, or even the nineties anymore where an owner can actually make money and become rich. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's like, if anybody thinks I'm getting rich doing this, it's like you are so sorely mistaken. Yeah. Like I have cut my salary by a third basically like into yeah. One third of what I used to be making basically, if not more so. Right. Like this is because I just love ramen and I just really wanted to open a ramen shop. Like, and we're here and we're doing it. It doesn't yeah. come without sacrifice, but yeah, I mean, the stress of money is tough. It sucks that that's the biggest stressor. I know that that's the thing that stresses me out more than anything in this restaurant because it's what drives everything else, right? If a cook calls off, like if I wasn't stressed about money, I just fucking close the restaurant. Hey man, like we can't make the ramen, so we're just not going to do it today, but you need to be open because you got to make money. You're losing yeah. money if you're not making money. That sucks that that tension exists. It's brutal. Yeah, I think the the misconception too, especially for myself, is that, you know, I've, I've been on a lot of media stuff and, you know, I have my name out there on things. I think people think that I'm rolling in money. Oh, inventor of the ramen burger. He must be like making millions off of it. But no, we're, you know, I, I don't even have a shop right now. So yeah. it's, it's tough to fill those shoes as well. Um, and of course, I don't know, I like I talked to Scott LaChapelle a lot too. Um, and I asked him recently, like, so you, the, <laughs> you're, you're year and a half into your restaurant at Pickerel in Rhode Island. And like, do you see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? And, you know, he probably wouldn't want me to tell you this, but 
I don't think he does. Um, it's something where, you know, you're constantly trying to figure out what's sustainable and if you can keep doing it. And especially it's difficult in America versus Japan to really have a shop for 20, 30 years, you know? Yeah. Um, especially with like the leases, landlords and all that and rent increasing, yeah. um, just property value in general. So let me ask you this. Do you see yourself being able to do Akahoshi ramen in this location for 10, 20, 30 years? I mean, I would love for this restaurant to be open 20 years, but not in the way that it's currently operating, right? Like something's got to change, right? That's just the reality of it. Is that change going to be, do you think that change is there? Okay. So usually what, what happens then is like change means the quality level decreases. I know. And so that's the struggle. It's like, yeah, what so, do you do? I don't exactly. know yet, man. We've been open three months. I got to figure <laughs> it out. But like sustainability is really critical to success of any business. And it's incredibly important for my own mental health to be able to make it sustainable. Right? Like I don't think I'm cut out to work 16 hours a day for the rest of my life. That's true. I will acknowledge that 100%. I would like to be able to like live life occasionally, <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. that's a normal thing too. What the path is to do that, whether it's finding and getting lucky and finding someone who shares your vision so strongly that they can execute at the level or, you know, building your nest egg and maybe reducing hours or accepting a drop in quality or I don't know, opening another location that maybe is a little less high quality so that like you have a secondary source of income. I don't know. I don't know what the plan is yet. There's lots of options, but yeah, I hear you. No, there's no way that I could be doing this for 20 years every single day. Like, and it was never the intention, I think, to be like, yeah, I'm going to come in and work 16 hours a day for the rest of my life. Like my goal was to build something sustainable. I want a sustainable ramen shop, like more than... I probably, because I want everybody to feel sustainable right now. I think my team is very happy and they're feeling a very sustainable way of working. The next phase is how do I get that for myself? It shouldn't just be everybody. Somebody has to suffer. I think, I think somebody, there are ways to make it work for everybody, make yeah. it work for your customers and for yourself. What that is, I don't know, but I got a lot of time to figure it out. I think. Um, do you feel the pressure being, you know, the so-called ramen lord for people that come in, not only customers, but people that work for you to really keep it interesting. Like if someone comes in, oh, this is the ramen lord. Like, I mean, it's happened to me before. Like, oh, this is Keizo Shimoda. I'm working for him. But there are times where I've had people come in and be like, they get bored. It's oh, like, yeah. I already had that happen. I mean, so I had one cook leave because effectively he was bored. He's like, I don't want to make mm -hmm. ramen forever. Um, and so I think part of that is acknowledging what is the kind of person you're trying to recruit. And that has been a challenge, I think, as well. Finding the fit for people. And I'm lucky in so much that I did a lot of recruiting and fit finding at my old job. So I'm very meticulous mm -hmm. and thoughtful about this part of the process. Like in any given year, I would recruit or interview 50 plus people at my old job. So I'm very comfortable with that element of the business, but finding or identifying the right fit of a person for a new business is in itself a challenge because the culture of the business is not developed yet. 
it's still in its infancy figuring itself out in so much that I'm trying to make Akahoshi be a thing, but my staff are also a part of Akahoshi. And so they make it a thing too, you know, and some things are out of my control in that regard too. What they like and what they don't like is going to sometimes align with me and sometimes not. And am I okay with it not aligning? Am I not okay? What do I correct versus what do I allow to kind of be its own organic changing thing? The business isn't just me, right? And I think that that's often difficult for a lot of restaurant shop owners to accept is like, it's not just you. It's everybody else who makes it work. And you have to understand what does that mean then in terms of its fit, in terms of its culture, in terms of who would be a good person on the team. So yeah, when somebody got bored, it's because I was looking for the wrong person, frankly. I was looking for a kind of person who wouldn't have been a good fit at this restaurant, right? I need to look for a different person. That's not to say that they were untalented or incapable. They were super talented. I This yeah. person is great. This person is awesome. But things change. Like the type of person who's going to be the right fit for that job is going to change. And you just have to be willing to accommodate that and accept that. So I'm still trying to figure out what that person is. Yeah. I think you'll constantly be trying to figure that out because you'll be changing as well. Right. You yourself and your restaurant, you know, and the hope is to have everybody change together. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah. We're making it work though. All right. Well, man, I can sit here and talk ramen <laughs> with you forever. I'm sure there's a lot more topics that, that we can talk about. And I know the listeners will probably want us to talk about something for two to three hours, but you know, I, I don't want to get too far into things. Um, but I'm really, really happy, you know, that you're, you're happy and you're successful with Akahoshi Ramen. And I can't wait to get out there. All right. I want to see what all the hype is about. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to find out. Overrated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Well, I want to ask you, like, ha, ha, are there any chefs that you really, really respect that have come to eat at Akahoshi and you felt the pressure? Like, have you been nervous? And Oh, and I mean, that? so many, dude. I mean, there's just so many of these very inspiring people who have come into the shop, right? Like, not just chefs, but like critics and people I respect. Like just last week, this guy, Charles Jolie, who I've just looked up to for so long as like one of the best mixologists in, in Chicago. Like he just came in and sat down at the counter one day. It was like, oh my God, what are you <laughs> doing here? What is happening? It's like, and yeah, the pressure is hot when somebody like that comes in. But, you know, how many bowls of ramen have we made now? Thousands and thousands and thousands. There's no adjusting it now really for one person. Like we put our best foot forward and try and do the best we can with every bowl of ramen we make. And yeah. it seemed like you liked it and that's all I can do. Right. That That's all ultimately what I can do. But yeah, dude, some crazy people have come into this restaurant, like some crazy, like chefs. I just have so much admiration for have come into this restaurant and just, it seems like they've all enjoyed it. You never know. People are very nice. They say one <laughs> thing, they mean another. I think that they have enjoyed it so far though. That's good. Well, man, I wish you continued success. I mean, following your dream is really a special thing. And, and I'm proud of you. Um, I'm proud of how far you've come. But you still have a long way to go. So don't I get know. too comfortable. <laughs> I know. I remind myself all the time. Stay humble, man. Like, it's really important. Yeah. And and let's check in again. Maybe, I don't know, six months to a year down the road. Sure. I'd love to keep hearing the story. Love to keep people updated. And 
anyone who hasn't been out to Chicago yet, if you do go, definitely visit Akahoshi Ramen in Logan Square. Uh, Mike will hopefully be there because you're you're there all the time, right? So far. <laughs> Every day. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So go say hi to the Ramen Lord and definitely enjoy his his really well thought out miso ramen. Uh, go look up his story. Uh, anything else you want to give the listeners? No, just thanks for having me on. It's good to see you, Kezo. You seem like you're doing well. I am very curious about what's in the pipeline for you because I feel like you are the, the ramen god of the United States. So there's an element of like, if I'm Lord, I guess you're God. I don't know. It's like <laughs> no. the supreme overlord of all of it. No. I wonder what you're up to next. I hope you will share with uh, folks and keep us posted on what yeah maybe we should do an episode where you interview me okay sounds <laughs> good no yeah i mean I, i'm just to give the listeners something i am trying to figure out what's next for me i i was laid off from my job in november right about the time you opened so i think i have a chance now to really feel out what's next mm-hmm. and i'm gonna kind of enjoy that too um, but but the pressure is on, you know. It's it's tough. I I you know I need to do something. I need to keep busy. Uh, got mm-hmm. a family of three and a wife to feed. So yeah, we'll we'll figure it out. Um, something's got coming. All the faith in you, hopefully, man. I believe in it. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Ramen Lord. Uh, it's a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Kate. Stay in touch. Yeah. Take it easy. All Bye. right. Bye. I love the ramen podcast.